this, this month, through March, <clears throat> on, on the Sundays, we're going to be doing a series of talks focused on parables of Jesus. And um, if you don't know what, I'm, what I mean when I say a parable of Jesus, some of us spent a little bit of time here in, this week trying to sort of sum up in a sentence what, what Jesus' parables were. And this is what we came up with. We said that they were world stories that help us see kingdom truths. When Jesus um, taught people, he had this genius way of using, using pictures and stories that, that we might encounter in this world and in our lives. Um, and then he embedded within them truths and principles about, uh, about his kingdom for us to discover. So, so, for example, when he wanted us to, to see that our heavenly father loves us unconditionally, he didn't just say, your heavenly father loves you unconditionally. No, he, t- he told us a story about, about a lovesick father and a prodigal son because he, he knew that that would be a far more effective way of, of helping us to see that truth than just telling us an abstract principle. And he, he was really strategic in this. Jesus used parables so that, so that these truths could be sought, stuck, and shared. What do I mean by that? Well, firstly, um, sought. A lot of Jesus' parables had almost like a bit of a riddle-like quality to them. Um, it said that we had to kind of go looking for the truth. We had to dig into it. He gave us stuff to chew on so that we could kind of like find and discover the truth. So that, so that when, it did, when we did actually see it, it would get stuck in our minds. And we've experienced this, haven't we? If I was to ask you to, to reel off a bunch of Bible verses, you know, many of us might struggle to do that. But I only need to say the phrase, Good Samaritan. And most, many of us would be able to, you know, reel off and recount that story because it's, it's stuck in our mind, isn't it? It's clever. And that's the thing that made these, these stories so much easier then to be, to be shared. And so Jesus was being um, really strategic. It was a really effective way of communicating. And so we're going to look at a, a parable today and hopefully see some truth in it. Um, it's going to get stuck in our mind so that we can share it with others. And the one that we've chosen, it kind of relates to last week in a way, because if you were here for last Sunday, it was our Vision Sunday as a, as a church, and, and John shared, it was so exciting, wasn't it, to hear about the, the stuff that's happened this year, and then this inspiring vision for, for where we're going to go this year. Um, and he described that we're going to be centered around this, this phrase, for Jesus, for Nottingham, for you. So this week, we're going to focus on, on the first of these elements, for Jesus. I'm just going to hear what John had to say about that. Our emphasis this year is this, for Jesus, for Nottingham, for you. Easy to remember, for Jesus, for Nottingham, for you. Firstly, for Jesus, we are a church, a family, a people who exist, first of all, to worship Jesus, the one who is above every name, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge as Lord. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, the one through whom we have access to the Father. We want to live lives which follow where he leads. We want to join him in extending his kingdom. We run the race marked out for us as a church and as individuals with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we want this year to grow in our commitment to Jesus and in our individual relationships with him. Great. So 
this morning we're going to look at a, a parable of Jesus that I think is, is really helpful as we consider as a church what it means to, to live and exist for Jesus this year. Um, it's in Luke's Gospel in chapter 14 and it starts in verse 25 with, with this is the background. It's, it starts by saying large crowds were traveling with Jesus. The backstory here is that if you read through Luke's Gospel through sort of like chapters 13 up to about 20, there's this growing sense of excitement that's building around the person of Jesus. In, in chapter 13, we hear that um, he was traveling from the ch- through the towns and the villages and he was teaching on his way to Jerusalem. By, by chapter 14, we, we read just there that large crowds had started to follow him. By chapter 18, people were bringing their babies out of the crowd um, and asking him to, to bless them. He was so popular. By chapter 19, it says... He was near to Jerusalem, and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. See, at that time, many of the Jewish people, they were, they were longing for a revolution. They were tired of, of living in their own land, but living under the occupation of the Romans. They were, they were tired of paying taxes to Caesar, and they were ready for a revolution. And they'd just begun to wonder whether this Jesus character, who was making so many waves, was the, was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Um, Messiah was a Jewish word that that described this anointed king that God had promised to rescue them. And they was reading about this character in the scriptures and wondering, is this Jesus? So by the time that he finally arrived in in Jerusalem, it was basically a frenzy. Um, You know, Palm Sunday, you might have heard of that. The streets were lined with people chanting, singing. They were throwing their coats in the road before him. And so this passage that we're looking at today sort of occurred somewhere along that build-up. There's this crowd following Jesus, and there is a sort of a buzzing expectation in the air. And in that situation, Jesus turns to the crowd, and this is what he says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I mean, talk about a way to sort of kill the atmosphere a little bit. I, I don't know whether they had tumbleweeds in ancient Palestine, but I sort of imagine some just blowing across in front of Jesus and somebody just like, <clears throat> just can't hear it. But he didn't stop there. He carries on. He, suppose, he says, suppose um, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Wow, it's pretty, it's pretty full on, isn't it? So what is it that Jesus wanted us to see in this passage? What is it that he wanted to get stuck in our minds? Um, and what is it that he wants me to share today? Well, firstly, I believe He's asking us the question, if you want to live for Jesus, have you first counted the cost? I don't know if you've ever embarked on a a project um, where you underestimated the real life costs of it, the reality of it. I think half the room are probably thinking parenthood is that. But um, a few years ago, Abby and I, we moved house. We bought this fairly old house. Um, It had been occupied by the same people for about 45 years. It was basically like a 1987 time capsule. And um, the estate agents told us that it needed a bit of 
modernizing. Um, and so we were, we were pretty optimistic about that. We were like, great, you know, lick of paint here, shampoo the carpets, it's gonna be great. And surely that avocado bath suite, that's gonna come back into fashion anyway sometime soon. So, <laughs> but of course, as soon as we started the process of modernizing, we realized that we hadn't fully counted the costs. We had not counted the costs of fixing the damp. We had not counted the costs of, of 45 years worth of chain smoking seeping into the walls. And I certainly, personally, had not counted the cost of stripping wood chip, which is <laughs> it's just horrific. Anyway, I'm scarred by that. It is sometimes, it, through, during the process, it reminded me of, there was a film, a Tom Hanks film in the 80s called The Money Pit. I don't know if anybody saw it. I just thought, just to give you a sense of how, what, I, what I went through. Anna and Walter are young, single, and in love. They've got good jobs, fabulous futures, a magnificent new home, that they bought for a song. Who says they can't have it all? It's gonna be fun fixing it up. You'll see. They don't make them like that anymore. Um, but that, admittedly, it wasn't quite that bad, was it, the house? But it, was, it, was, it felt like it at some points. There was various points over the last few years where I felt and asked myself the question, you know, why did I let myself in for this? And in this parable about this unconstructed tower, Jesus was warning us to not make the same mistake in our faith. He was essentially saying, if you want to follow me, know before you start that there is a cost involved. And for me, I don't know about you, but for me, there's something immediately puzzling about this parable because at first glance, it seems to contradict something that we talk about, that we sing about week in, week out in this place. And that is the fact that, that we believe that we receive God's love and acceptance free of charge. His love costs us nothing. There was um, the Ephesians verse on the screen while we were worshipping for it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that, so that no one can boast. So in this parable, if that's true, what are all these costs that Jesus is talking about? Is this like some kind of Bible equivalent to, to small print, like a bit of a catch-out clause? Well, if we, if we take another look, you can see that on closer inspection, there is actually a distinction here. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So the distinction is that the, the cost that Jesus is talking about here is, 
is not the cost of salvation. It's not like some price that we have to pay in order to earn God's love. That's, that's free. We receive that by faith alone. The cost that Jesus is talking about is the cost of discipleship. It's the, it's the price we pay for living for Jesus and, and growing in our faith. And the point that Jesus is making really is that that cost is actually pretty significant. He uses the most evocative language to spell it out. He says, if you want to follow me, then you need to pick up your cross. And to the crowd at the time, those words, pick up your cross, they would have immediately, in their mind, probably reminded them of of the Jewish rebels and revolutionaries that they had heard about or even seen who had been crucified by the Romans. And to them, they would have heard, you know, if you want to see a cultural revolution around this place, some of you are going to need to be prepared to pay that ultimate price. But at the same time, as Jesus used that language, pick up your cross, he was, also, he was also speaking on another level. He was also pointing towards the fact that the cross was part of his own journey, that that was the reason that he was heading to Jerusalem, to die on a cross to save us. On another level still, Jesus was also, he was talking specifically to some of his followers who would, have, who would have been there in the crowd that day. Because, of course, he knew that for them, the early church literally faced persecution where many of them were, were, were crucified for their faith. And yet, even still, on another level, these words carry significance personally for each of us. Because individually, Jesus invites each of us in our journey with him to to pick up our cross as we follow him by by dying to our old life, dying to a way of living that that centers around ourself and being born into this this new life centered around faith in Jesus. There's a a quote that you've probably heard here before, um, a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this is, the, this is what Paul was talking about when he, when he wrote a letter to the Galatian church and he, and he explained, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loves me and gave himself for me. This is the crucifixion that we go through. Every time we We give up our rights and our privileges, sacrifice our time and our energy and our money every time we face persecution or hardship as a Christian and we do it for Jesus. That is what it means for us to take up our cross and that is the cost of discipleship. So there's a distinction. The price tag of your salvation was Jesus' life but the price tag of our discipleship is our own. And this parable is, is super helpful in that because it, it helps to make sense of something that we experience in our lives. And that is the fact that Jesus, living for Jesus, those words are easy to say, but they are hard to accomplish in reality. You know, it's easy to, to sing songs on a Sunday declaring how committed we are to him and how, you know, we're living for him. But doing it out there in the week is the tricky bit, isn't it? It's easier to live for Jesus here on a Sunday than it is to do it outside in the world. And the problem is that we spend 90 minutes a week here and we spend 9,990 minutes a week out there before you reach for your calculator. That's right, that is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I know that this is perhaps not the most, you know, uplifting, positive question. But if we are serious this year as a church about doing what John was talking about this year and living for Jesus this year, then we do need to heed Jesus' warning. If you want to live for Jesus, have you first counted the cost of that? Two weeks ago, we baptised um, 29 people, 29 adults. It was an incredible night if you were here. Um, but the reality is that for some of the guys who got baptised in the fortnight since, they will have, perhaps you have, encountered obstacles, challenges in your faith. For you, this parable is reassuring because it, it, it lets us know that that's to be expected. But these words also spur us on when we encounter those obstacles. Because when it says, when Jesus said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, we can also know that the, that the reverse of that is true. We can know that whoever does pick up their cross for Jesus will progress as a disciple of Jesus. We grow in our faith. When we pick up our cross, the Holy Spirit, he uses those experiences to, to help transform us to shape our character. And, and when we do this, although that isn't easy, it's rewarding. And when we see people do it, it's inspiring as well. Um, this week, it was so inspiring as the, um, as the beast from the east swept in and Nottingham was brought to a standstill. Um, we made a decision for, as a church. We closed the church building on Thursday. Um, but Ali and Kathy... Um, who lead uh, the arches, were, were just determined to keep that place open, if at all possible. And so they, 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 they told the team not to come in unless, it was, unless they could make a safe journey. But 25 hardcore team members made it in so that we could continue to serve the city and serve our clients. And it was amazing, wasn't it? Well done. That's um, a mattress that was going to a, a family that didn't have beds. Um, and apparently one client arrived... It was the first time that he'd ever been in the Arches building. He explained, I'm new to the area, but I've heard about this place. And he was cold, wet, and, and his, his shoes were, you know, in really poor condition. His feet were soaking wet. He was cold. He said, I've just come, is there, is, I don't know if it's possible to get, maybe get some shoes. And apparently the team member who was with them asked them what size they were, said whatever size it was, and they immediately took off their shoes, gave it to the guy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I know. It's, well, whoever you are. It's inspiring when we count the cost. Um, some other people that I find really inspiring in the life of the church are the people who do discipleship year and discipleship year plus as they commit through the year, giving up time to serve, to get trained, equipped, and, and just invest in their relationship with God. And um, a bit like Will was saying, I, from experience, I did it over a decade ago, even more longer than Will. Um, I can say that the, it's a life-changing year. I finished that year um, a different person, but there was a cost involved. You have to give up time in the week, which, which usually means giving up income as well. You have to serve. You have to do background jobs that other people don't necessarily want to do. But God uses all of it. And so for some of you who are here in the room this morning, it might be that, that God's stirring your heart right now to, to count that cost um, and to, to explore being part of the discipleship year or the discipleship year plus this year, in which case, as the guys said, there's a, there's a vision evening for that um, in the next week and the week after. You can look at the details in the connect sheet. 
But of course, that's not what everybody is called to. Otherwise, it'd be a big discipleship year. But being a church that exists and lives for Jesus this year will look like something for all of us. For you, it might be pushing into generosity in a new way or reaching out to share your faith with the people around you. It might be serving on a new team or serving on a team for the first time. Or it might just be digging into God's word in a new um, way and studying the Bible in more depth to understand it better. Um, this year, I started doing the, the Bible in the year thing um, in January. And um, to begin with, I was flying. I was thinking, maybe I'll do two sessions a day and just finish by summer because it was just so effortless. But of course, here we are in March and, um, and we've been going through the instructions um, for the construction of the tabernacle. And um, if, if anyone's doing it, and I keep doing this thing where I, I read or listen to the whole thing, and at the end of it, I'm like, I haven't taken any of that in. And you have to start again. You know what it's like, don't you? Like building the tower, these types of endeavors, they're easier to start than they are to complete. Another example of that is, is generosity. Initially, generosity is so much fun isn't it? You know, when you, when you decide to start giving regularly, regularly to a charity or, or giving to church, filling out the form, you just feel so great about yourself. You're like, I'm such a generous person. Look at me. I'm just really enjoying this. But then a few months later, you know, you have a month where there's the MOT and the washing machine breaks down at the same time. And it's, it's harder. It's harder to keep building that tower. With all of these things, though, every time we persevere, Every time we bear the cost involved, it's like we put another brick on, another brick on. And the Holy Spirit, he works through this. He uses these experiences to build our character. And we become a bit by bit more like Jesus. It's rewarding and it's transforming. But it's always easier to start than it is to persevere. So I think although this parable isn't the most fun, as I've said before, it is helpful. It's a bit like tough love from Jesus. Because he longs for us to be that kind of church. He longs for us to be a church that goes out there and exists and lives for Jesus. And so he knows that that will be difficult for us at times. And, and as the true friend that he is, he gives us this warning. If you want to live for me, just make sure you count the cost first. So that's the first question. Now, I've got one more question that I want to dig out of this parable or this passage. But just to warn you, if anything, it's a little bit more challenging. Sorry about that. So just checking everyone's okay with that. This is the question. If you want to live for Jesus, are you willing to put him first? I don't know if you noticed the way that Jesus introduced this parable was pretty striking. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And again, this is one of those bits in the Bible, isn't it, where you, you kind of have to do a bit of a double take here because it sounds so harsh. Hate, essentially, your family. Well, I did a bit of, little, little bit of research here and it turns out that the word that's been translated as hate here um, could, could perhaps better be translated as, as love less, um, which makes a bit more sense to me because elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus passionately supports the scripture's instruction to honor your parents. And of course, Jesus urged us to love everyone. 
So Jesus wasn't, it's not as though he was literally instructing his followers to hate their family. But nonetheless, he was still suggesting something that is that's pretty shocking, really. Because he was, sent, he was essentially saying, if you want to follow me, I need to come first in your life. Even your family has to come second to me. Even your own life. In other words, even your own priorities and desires, they'll need to come second to mine if you're going to pursue me. And Jesus was using really provocative language, I believe, here. I think he was being really deliberate about this because, because I think he needed somehow to, to cut through the crowd that day and catch the attention of the people who were there to see, the people who were really seeking the meaning of what he was saying. He, he knew that as he said that stuff, there would be people in the crowd who, who perhaps would just respond, you know, um, critically to what he had to say, sneering in disapproval. He knew that there would be some people who would just be confused. Hate my parents, what are you on about? He knew that some would perhaps be, you know, really enthusiastic and promise to put him first in their life, but they would forget about it the next day. But he knew that there were a few in the crowd, just a few, who were there to follow him. He knew that there were a few who were seeking the truth, who would see what he meant and that the truth would get stuck in their minds. And he knew that those would be the ones, just those few, who would go on to form the early church and share the news about Jesus with the world and change the world. So Jesus was, he was speaking at a crowd, but he was really speaking to a few. He was sifting between the crowd, the spectators, and the followers. And, 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 and I believe this parable, it probably works in the same way today. We're here as a big crowd, aren't we? And each of us has a choice how we want to hear these words from Jesus. And so that's the question, the question that I want to ask you is, are you here this morning as a, as a spectator or as a follower? Because if you are here and you're like, no, I, I want to live for Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to live for him. Then I believe at that point Jesus says, that's brilliant. My love for you is unconditional. It's free. You cannot pay for it. I love you as you are. The invitation to follow me is, is open to you. You don't have to qualify yourself for that. But if you do want to come along on this journey, if you want to be shaped by me, you'll need to put me first and you'll need to count that cost. Are you up for that? In other cultures around the world, People are required to count staggering costs to follow Jesus. They find that they literally need to leave their family, their homes, their livelihoods in order to follow Jesus. Um, for, for a couple of the guys who got baptised here last week and they came come to the UK recently um, seeking asylum, and, and for them, that is exactly the kind of cost that they've had to bear. And whilst we have to be thankful to God that we live in a country and a culture where where we don't face that type of immediate persecution for our faith. On the flip side of that, it means that if we do want to do this thing of living for Jesus, then it means that sometimes we do have to read passages like this to sort of shake ourselves awake and, and, and redefine what discipleship really looks like. Because, you know, in this, in this country, and, and maybe even especially in a big church, it's possible to sort of coast along with the crowd 
as a follower of Jesus. It's possible to, you know, maybe nip along to church when we can and volunteer if it, if it fits around everything else in our life and maybe chuck a few coins in a, in a charity box or in a giving basket um, and, and, and reach the conclusion, great, I've, I've, I've done my bit. I've counted the cost of, of being a disciple. But that picture, that definition of discipleship, it just, it just doesn't line up with the picture that Jesus gives us in this book. When we're pursuing Jesus, we'll end up making decisions that will make us stand out from the crowd. We were, we were, um, we were chatting in small group this week, and there was this lady at the group who, she'd just done Alpha, and she's on the First Steps course, and she was talking about how recently she's found herself stopping um, when she walks past homeless people in the street and just giving, offering some time to talk to them and support them. And she explained that in the past, she'd often felt a bit of a pang of sympathy when she walked past people like that. But she'd never stopped. And she said, it's only since I've been coming here, it's only since I've been around these people, it's only since I've been learning about the person of Jesus that I've actually started to stop. Something's changed. Because that's the sort of thing that happens when we start living for Jesus. He starts to guide us and lead us towards the people and the places where he needs us most. And he, he doesn't force this upon us. The decision of whether we want to count that cost is entirely ours. But every time we do put him first, every time we do put his agenda first, we find that he uses us to do the most uh, incredible, incredible things. To reach out to people who are in need. To give a person a pair of shoes because theirs are so dreadful. To get a mattress into the, the home of a family who've got nothing, literally. To stop and uh, buy a coffee or a sandwich for a homeless person. He leads us to, to pray prayers that will then be answered. And he leads us to share our faith with Jesus so that they might enter into relationship with him. All cool stuff. But it requires that we ask this question of ourselves. Am I, am I truly willing to put his agenda first? But if we allow it to, that question will challenge us. No matter where we are in our faith, no matter how mature we are in our faith, that question will always challenge us because it will expose where parts of our lives and parts of our heart have, 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 have drifted away from him. Back in, um, in 2004, at the Athens Olympics, um, there's a guy called Matthew Emmons, um, and he reached the final of an event called the 50-meter rifle three positions. Okay, so going into the final round, he was in gold medal position. He had a three-point lead. He basically just needed to hit the target in order to get the gold. So he gets down, he aims at the target, great shot, perfect. The only problem was... He'd been aiming at the target next door. And that's his reaction when he saw what happened. He went from first place to last place. I think this is something that's so easy to do in our faith. Our target this year is that we want to be for Jesus. But the problem is that we have lots of targets to either side that might look quite, quite similar. But instead of being labelled for Jesus, they might be labelled for me or for the approval of others. And the problem is that it's so easy to, to drift towards those and aim for those because often the stuff that we do in life, practically, it can look really similar. We go to church, we work, we socialize, 
we do stuff. And, but, but, but the problem is we can end up hitting a bullseye in the wrong target. You know, take what I'm doing right now in this moment. I'm speaking to, to you guys. But why am I doing that? Ultimately, um, I'm doing, you know, hopefully to, for your benefit and for my benefit. But ultimately, I'm doing this for Jesus. But, you know, if I examine myself, and that was something that I spent a bit of time doing this week, it's not totally that simple, is it? Because, because there'll be parts of me that will have other motives as I do this. There'll be part of me that wants to do this this morning um, to impress you so that you might think more highly of me. And what's, what's the problem is that if I'm not careful, if I don't examine that, if I don't just refocus, the problem is I can end up aiming for the wrong target altogether. And I think we can do this in all kinds of ways, can't we? If you think for a moment, reflect about some of the things that are just most important in your life right now. Relationships, goals that you have in life, perhaps a big project that's taking up a lot of your time, the thing that you're saving towards, the thing that you're working through. These things are great, perhaps, but, but as we look at this parable today, I believe that Jesus just wants to give us a chance to recalibrate and check that, that, that these things aren't replacing him as the thing we're living for, him as the goal we're living for, that as we pursue them, we're doing it all with living for Jesus in mind. To ask the question, am I actually on target? So, I realise that this morning hasn't been the warmest, the most fluffy talk I've ever done, but I hope it will help us as we seek to be a church that pursues Jesus this year, a church that's willing to count the cost of being a disciple, a church that will stand out from the culture around us if we do that, as we grow and serve and worship together, and as we reach out and love one another, but as we do it all for Jesus. We've got some time to pray, so why don't we just stand together